Welcome to the Productivity Podcast. Delighted to be joined today by Darren Williams. Afternoon, Darren. Simon, how are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. So, Darren, you are MD at William Harding Consulting and currently doing some work at Scrubbed, which is a men's skincare range, I understand. Correct. Yeah, I've been there uh, just over a year now, so a a long interim role. But um, yeah, initially joined as COO and uh, became the CEO uh, recently, actually a couple of months back. So I'm enjoying that work with that client. Good. And it'd be good if you could tell us a bit about your background as well, because I know you've done various retail roles, trustee roles, ambassadorial roles. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I um, had a fairly uh, sort of straightforward retail career at the beginning, uh, man and boy stuff. So I began my retail career on the shop floor, radio rentals for those that remember it. Five years there through to fashion retail for four years. And then with Orange, actually, Orange Retail and joined the, uh, the the original team of Orange Retail and an amazing five years, um, particularly in that sector, you can imagine. Mobile phones, cell phones were exceptionally exciting at that time. Um, and so Orange was, in my view, by far the, the, the best brand to be with. So I was very lucky there. Some time uh, with Costa Coffee for a few years with the Whitbread Group, um, which I enjoyed immensely. Um, and then later Argos leading the London business, uh, retail director at Hotel Chocolat, Paul, and uh, then Unilever, um, where I led the T2 brand across uh, the UK, Europe, and uh, the US before setting up Williams Harding in January 2018. Lots of food and drink related roles there. So we've got chocolate, we've got tea, coffee. <laughs> um, it was a bit of a thing. Yeah, it was a bit of a thing. I think um, I've enjoyed the fact that I've done, you know, not just chocolate and tea, but, you know, mobile phones, general merchandise, electrical, fashion. It's been really great to to touch all those parts of retail. And actually, retail is, is product agnostic. Um, you know, the, the, the basics behind uh, what runs a good retail business and what makes a good retail team are the same, regardless of the product. So, but it's been good to, to do different things. You know, certainly working in chocolate for five years was lots of fun. And uh, I still remain close to the team at Hotel Chocolat. And um, I'm still a big fan and advocate of their products as well. My uh, son's a big fan of the chocolate, especially at Easter. He likes the um, egg sandwiches. So they're a favourite in our house. Yeah. So we're going to cover a few themes today. We're going to start with, and I know you'll cringe, the word new normal. Um <laughs> So it's being banded around, and I have to admit we have used it on a podcast. I, I kind of <laughs> not not really sure exactly what it means. Like you, it's a bit of a, a cringy thing, but we do seem to get addicted to these sound bites that possibly have actually no meaning because it's it's something that the press or whatever it builds a groundswell of popularity. Social media is probably one of the other places where it gets momentum, but I don't know. I don't know why we're all saying it. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I think everyone sort of fell into the trap of using that phrase two or so months back when when lockdown hit. And um, it's it's easy to understand why. There, there needs to be almost a collective understanding of of trying to navigate this complete unknown. And so we try to sort of latch labels or sound bites to it that we can collectively sort of hide behind as some kind of protection. But the the, you know, the new normal particularly, I think, has been so overused now to the point where people that are using it really don't have no idea what they're actually saying or meaning when they use the words. 
and equally, I, you know, I've actually seen for myself, you know, some eye rolling going on in various Zooms and webinars where, you know, the overuse of it, I think, is really starting to cause malaise in people as well. Because what what does new normal really mean? You know, I'm still waiting for someone to give me a a pure definition of what, of it. And I, I therefore try to shy away now from using it myself um, and equally I'm, I'm becoming more adverse to it in uh, in various webinars and Zoom calls as I come across it. Yeah, I think there's, there's a piece. The word normal gives us some reassurance, doesn't it? That yeah. it's, it's kind of not going to change, but I think the whole irony of it is that it actually is going to change. Yeah, for me, it's like, I think there's a collective need to sometimes be experts at everything as well. And so there's been this obsession about predicting what comes next. And I get that because actually predicting what comes next at least gives us some kind of comfort, if you like, to say, I think this is what's going to happen. And so you center all of your hopes and thoughts on that thought. And maybe that's not what's going to happen. And you could be very disappointed. There's, there's one real truth to the new normal. And that is we don't know what it looks like. And it's dictated by the path of the virus. And the path of the virus will equal the path of the economy, which will equal the path of the recovery. And none of us know that at the moment. And so for me, some of these new normal conversations are slightly pointless. And I think it's tail wagging the dog or dog wagging the tail. At some point, the economy will be in such a place that it drives it the other way, if that makes sense. And the risk will be low and, and, and. So it'll be interesting how it manifests itself, I think. Yeah, I think what would have been much more interesting, you know, from terms of a content point of view or a webinar content, is how how we navigate the now. You know, so I'm much more interested to hear from, you know, real stories from real retailers, you know, around how they are simply surviving day to day, you know, and, and what's changed for them and, and, and how they've brought those changes to book. They, for me, are much more valuable webinars and ways to spend time rather than prophesizing about the new normal and, and what's waiting for us on the other side when, when none of us really know. And, and the other danger is comparing by country as well, because every, every other country's new normal is, is potentially very different, uh, as is the path of the virus in lots of different countries. So we need to navigate the markets that we play in as businesses. You know, so if I'm a retailer and I currently have stores in the UK and the US, I'd be most interested right now to talk to other retailers in those markets to understand what they were doing, what they've been facing and how they've been dealing with it. Yeah, you know, that's think, much more relevant to me. Absolutely. I think if we use the Marks, Marks and Spencer's example that Steve Rose come out with saying uh, many shopping experiences may never be the same and we may never shop the same way again. To quote him, uh, while some customer habits will return to normal, others have changed forever. So I think that that's an interesting statement and they back that up by showing that T-shirts, bras, bathroom product sales online have risen massively while suits and tie sales have dropped off the face of the earth. Mm. Uh, yes, I, I get why they put those statements out there. You know, there's, there's a bit of a... A caveat here to me for MS. So first of all, MS, I love them. Okay. They are a they're a heritage UK brand. I, I wish them nothing but success. And I am a loyal food customer at the very least. So uh, you know, I've always wished them well. I think they're an important part of the British High Street. Where I take caution with some of uh Steve Rowe's words, and you know, 
he can say what he like as the CEO of M&S. That's completely his prerogative. But M&S are known to be stuck in this kind of perpetual transformation, as I would describe it. And so they famously had, you know, a transformation plan for this and a transformation plan for that and a cultural transformation and so on. And they seem to be so transfixed on delivering transformation, they never actually arrive anywhere. Um, and so for me, that just got lost, the latest statement, in another round of statements that if you look at M&S have made over the last couple of years, there's always a new appointment at a senior level that's going to transform that department or transform this department. And then they might leave and someone else is going to come in and transform it instead. So you know, transformation, never be the same again. Again, all good sound bites. Um, I'm much more interested in facts around what that could look like. And actually, I think shopping habits, he's correct, will ultimately change. And it's understandable that it's much safer to buy a T-shirt online than it is a suit. But what are M&S going to then do to plug the gap of where they have lost sales on suits, for example? And that was what was lacking for me from the statement. So you're saying it will never be the same again. Get it. So what will you then do about that? You know, and I think probably that's the bit that's missing for me. And I'm sure that's the bit that's coming with the detail, you know, further down the line. But, you know, good old M&S have, have been perpetually in transformation for a, many, many years. And I think a number of industry watchers would hopefully agree with me on that. Yeah, I think it's evolution, not revolution, isn't it? So it, it changes very slowly. And understandably, these big businesses are difficult to to move it's like changing the oil moving the oil tanker isn't it you have to start navigating so many miles out but that means you lose the agility to keep up with market trends and, and react so yeah i mean this could be a really good thing for mns in some ways and you know it's, it's always important to try and pull out you know some of the things that could be good from this crisis in the future and i think mns has needed still to really transform its shopping experience only a a couple of months back, I posted on LinkedIn out of pure frustration, really, that, you know, the the simple act of changing basic men's white shirt in M&S turned into a almost half an hour visit, you know, because I was sent from the ground floor of Marble Arch to the top floor of Marble Arch, where the, that's the only place they can process refunds. So you trunch all the way up four or five floors um, to then join a massive queue because there's only one operator running the uh, refunds and uh, returns desk. How retro is that to have a separate area? No other tills can process it. And I just thought they're stuck in some kind of like time warp of retailing. And so if this crisis is finally what they need to kick them into the, um, you know, the next century, if you like, and really respond to shoppers' needs and get them off you know, the internet and into their stores – that can only be a good thing for MS. Otherwise, I only see more of the same coming, which is, you know, store closures in triple figures. And there's then the whole partnership with Ocado, so that whole online food delivery channel, which probably has caught them a bit short in, in the times we are today, but will be interesting to see how that develops moving forward. Absolutely. And I think there's, you know, there's, as I said, right at the start, before I, you know, sounded what was like my, you know, criticised MS uh, rant, but... You know, I absolutely love MS. I think they're a really important part of the high street. So I hope that the, the, the biggest positive out of this crisis for them is a real transformation of stores that is really delivered once and for all with some tangible, that's what we've done at the end of it. You know, so 
I'm a big fan of transformation projects and plans and strategies, as long as you take time to actually deliver them and then assess them. And we've done a podcast before about transformation. So when is transformation not transformation? Because again, a bit like some of the other buzzword soundbites, it's used a lot, but it's not necessarily transformational. Exactly. I mean, transformation director is a is becoming a more um, you know, recognised title in a number of businesses, and uh, I'm not quite sure it means the same thing from A to B. You know, it's it's a really interesting one, and it's a very subjective thing for any business that uses that words or that role within their own silo. It's a big journey to go on. Transformation is not easy at yeah, all. Absolutely. Well, it's, so, it's, always, it's always good to try and agree what you're trying to, uh, you know, what you're trying to achieve on that journey of transformation in the first place. And I think that often that very basic gets missed right at the start. So in a, an area or industry that's probably going to have to go through the biggest change is bars and restaurants. Mm. That whole food and beverage sector, which you've got clearly some good experience in from previous roles, is going to face some massive challenges when it's fully opened or if it if it's fully opened. Yeah, I mean, one of my first clients when I set up Williams Harding, and I was so lucky in 2018, was Corbin and King uh, Restaurant Group. So, you know, some real iconic brands such as the Wolseley, Delaunay, Zadell, and so on. And so I was super lucky to land them as a client. And just seeing how they're navigating through this crisis has been really interesting to watch. So, you know, really taking care of their people, which is indicative of their culture. Um, certainly, you know, from what I observed in my eight, nine months of working with that business, um, they've recently done a really interesting initiative where you can pre-purchase, you know, coupons to use in their restaurants in, in due course as they reopen. The, the twist here, which was the, the lovely twist, was 50% of the value of that voucher goes uh, straight into their staff's pocket to replace what they're losing in terms of trunk service charges. So, you know, again, a great Corbin and King initiative has been really well supported. You know, and Corbin and King are lucky in the sense that they do command a certain loyalty to their restaurants. There are people that, you know, dine in the Wolseley, have breakfast at the Wolseley on certain days of the week at certain times and have done for years. And, you know, they're such iconic venues that it, it protects them in some ways. But, it, you know, it's important to, uh, to give them kudos for the way that they protected their people. But the sector overall, you know, this vital sector, hospitality and leisure, you know, 3 million people employed, it's, it's more to it than just money, I think. You know, bars and pubs are often community hubs across the country, you know, and they've been closed now for, what, eight to ten weeks with no income and very little support from the government. You know, they might have been given some business relate, rate relief here or there, but many of them haven't been eligible for some of the grant schemes and they've not been offered any help at all on their biggest cost being rent. And so, you know, there's a long way to go to really understand the impact on hospitality and leisure and, and what that might play out like uh, on the other side of all this. I think if we look at kind of casual dining, so you, your coffee shops, for example, their, their challenges without drive-through become quite um severe just because of the way that all those shops are laid out so small entrances difficult to queue within a, any sort of social distancing mechanism difficult to sit within any sort of social distance mechanism so i think may make them reevaluate the whole 
number of uh, outlets they've got, how they process people in and out of the stores, because, you know, there's people saying this is the first of many pandemics. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I call out Pret as a great example. So, you know, more and more Pret's are getting themselves open. I was, um, I'm always out early morning walking the dog on a, a good uh, few miles early morning West End walk. And um, it's remarkable, actually. I saw, you know, good three or four Pret's this morning open for trade nice and early with a really clear sign in the window of exactly how many people are allowed in store so one prep was 10 one was eight one was six and that number is really uh, declared clearly in store great markings on the floor you know and so they're making it as opaque as possible for customers to come in get the products that they love from prep and also do it in a really safe way and i think that's going to be how you navigate uh, through to the future you know that kind of really clear comms to your customer I, i'm interested from starbucks and i know of the uk leadership of starbucks but um i don't i don't know them to talk to but um i wonder how that model works because their model is different where they've effectively sealed the doors up i'm not sure if you've seen it and you can order on your mobile and collect from this kind of assembled hatch uh, in the doorway so there's a member of the team standing there handing you your drink through this hatch in what was once the doorway um, but no one is allowed in like the prep way you know where a certain number of people are allowed in store and I, I guess they'll have their reasons to do that I mean many Starbucks are much smaller footprints I get that but that's a pretty tough model to run in a sustainable way certainly from a cost point of view um, because you know how many customers are ordering on their mobile and even then you have the issue of you know a potential queue at this small hatch in the doorway you know and how you encourage people to socially distance outside of your own starbucks stores so yeah for me that model felt a bit more complicated but kudos to prep for you know appearing to get it right so far yeah i think all the coffee chains have been pursuing the order order in advance and collect five ten minutes later on the app which i think is interesting one of the one of the things before lockdown that somebody was talking to us about from America was this whole thing that's getting some traction there about coffee subscription. So you subscribe like anything like Spotify or Netflix to a coffee house for X coffees per week, month, and then you kind of pre-plan when you're going to collect them. So you, you start to think about all that planning workload, being able to predict when people are coming more and it, it may play into those models, but then back to your point, you don't need all the space and all the furniture and all the, the counters that aren't being used to fulfill that model. Absolutely. You know, look, these places generate money in two ways. They sell food and they sell drinks, you know, and they sell them at scale. And so if, if they've lost that scale, the impact has to be found somewhere. So the obvious place to pull some of that money back is is through cutting down on your team numbers and i think you know again that must be the the tightrope that many hospitality businesses are having to walk around you know how do we offset some of the losses from our top line you know and the only answer is probably reduced cost in terms of food and beer you know, so maybe less choice for customers yep. but certainly an impact in terms of you know less team available less hours that then will be interesting based on the impact that has on wait times, cook times, time to get your bill when you've you've eaten. So there's a whole 
unknown in that part because if capacity is reduced as well but people are taking longer to turn a table let's say in a restaurant that further limits your ability to bring more people through and make more money absolutely i mean i think you know that is a it's a really good point because you know if if a restaurant absolutely relies on make this number up you know getting a hundred covers a night you know as their as their point of sometimes break even but hopefully their point of you know being a, a profitable good business if that's then going to be cut to say 50 people because uh, 50 covers because of social distancing requirements and regulations then where where do they find that money the answer again has to come back to choice and it comes back to team you know i can foresee restaurants offering you know slimmed down or you know t- a tempor- temporary other menus um so you get a a much smaller number of choices you know perhaps set menus could become a thing again so a restaurant can at least plan in advance but the danger simon is that you start to get the question of why i want to go to a restaurant in the first place you know i i want to go there because i want to eat something that might be a bit different from my week i want to be surrounded by other diners and understand and soak up the atmosphere i want to drink lovely wines and you know is that still going to feel the same on the other side of this you know depending on the restrictions that restaurants um, are going to be forced to follow and, and rightfully so i guess you know to to keep us all safe but i think what's different difficult for the industry right now particularly if you're a sit down restaurant is you just don't know yet you just yeah. don't know what date you're going to open for sure assume early july but you're not sure yet and you don't know what the exact restrictions are going to look like so it's really hard to plan with only potentially four or five weeks to go till they, they are allowed to trade again. And I think coupled with that, there'll be extra effort required to keep it to a different level of hygiene or there'll be an expectation from diners that there's a different level of hygiene because that that's directly associated to the virus. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, so again, you know, the, the path of how this plays out is all is all linked to the path of the virus. So we, we just don't know yet. Um, but what I think is, you know, again, mentioned Corbyn and King, again, a very interesting approach. They sent out a survey to their database uh, about two days ago, actually. I actually filled it in. Um, so they sent a database uh, survey out and just simply asked 10 simple questions around, you know, what are your intentions um, after you know restaurants can open, how do you foresee the way that you're going to eat, when you might eat, you know, which of our restaurants you might eat in, what time of day that might be? And so they're already kind of really pulling some data in now from a, a very loyal database who will tell them what their intentions are. And I think that's a really good shout for any hospitality business to really try and drive some understanding about intent on the other side of this. Because going back linked to the new normal conversation at the start, some of the stuff that was really making me cringe at the beginning of the crisis was so many brands that I haven't heard of for ages writing to me, telling me how much they care for me and how much I should stay safe. And it just all felt a bit disingenuous. I think what would be really good would be for some, some bespoke communication from brand to database saying, hey, here's how our people are. Um, and hear what our plans are for the future. And can we ask you a few questions to see what you think about that? And I think that's a much more engaging way to talk to your database rather than send out a generic, we care about you email when you, when you might not have spoke to your database for months. 
Yeah, I've had some of those as well, actually, and thinking I can't remember the last time I shopped there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is. It just doesn't feel genuine. You don't. You know. I'm sure. I'm sure it's sent with the absolute best of intent. Just to put that out there, but it just it just lands in a very kind of slightly awkward, uncomfortable way. I think. Absolutely. Well, Darren, it's been it's been a great chat. We've covered lots of ground from uh, some cringe buzzwords through to um, some of the MS stuff, and then on to food and beverage sector so some some good insight if people want to engage further with you where's the best place for them to find you uh, linkedin drop me a line uh on linkedin always happy to talk or dw at dwexec.com as well uh very, but yeah always through linkedin and i think just the one thing to sign off with is you know if we want hospitality and retail to survive on the other side of this we we need to support it you know, so it's really going to be on each of us to go out and support our local shops, bigger shops, you know, cafes, restaurants and so on. And I know that takes a certain amount of bravery on our part because some people do feel still very unsafe out there. But at some point, we're all going to go out, have to go out there and, and support these businesses to survive. Absolutely agree with that. And the final question that we're asking everybody on the podcast is mm. what's, the, what's the best bit of business advice you've ever been given? Oh, wow. Um, act now, I think would probably be the, the immediate response I would give to that. So, you know, I've worked in a number of businesses where, you know, it sometimes can be management by committee and it takes a few weeks to get things done. Um, the best bit of advice I was ever given was actually if, if you're sure it's the right idea, act now do it you know the, the worst that can happen is it doesn't work and you try something else but if you think you've got the the right approach act on it and then see what happens probably never been a better time for that advice as well darren it's been uh, a pleasure thank you simon great always great to talk to you as well look after yourself and, and um, you. catch up with you soon